Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. If you haven't already done so, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a subscriber, a supporter of the show. It is so much appreciated. And so please take the time, if you can, if you want to keep it on the air, go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. And thank you to all of you who have been in touch with me about my support group that meets every other Wednesday night on Zoom now. If you are interested, you can email me at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com or at BernsteinLMFT, F is in Frank, T is in Tom, at gmail.com, BernsteinLMFT at gmail.com. Let me know that you're interested and also what your interest is so I can make sure that it's the right fit for your needs. Thank you. And today... We have Cody and Candy. They are a married couple. They're from a small town in the Ozarks, located near the Arkansas-Missouri border. They met and began dating in 2012. Both grew up in strict religious communities and families, but each community and family and belief system was very different from the other. The Ozarks are kind of infamous for being sanctuaries for extreme religions and cults. It's a popular location because it's rural and people don't bother one another. Your home is your castle and what goes on there is no one else's business. Cody grew up living on his family's cult compound in rural Missouri. This compound was actually close to other infamous cult compounds. To Cody, though, everything was normal. He thought every family had its own oddities, just like his family. Cody was the victim of cult programming and kidnapping perpetuated by family members who didn't want him knowing the truth about their religion. So they used their power as cult leaders to convince Cody that he was an unwanted child, that his mother had left because she wanted a different life when his mother actually was a cult survivor who had escaped. In July 2013, Cody found out the truth about his family, and he was reunited with his mother after 15 years. Cody and his mother have developed a close relationship, which is quite wonderful. Cody also met his father in July 2013 for the first time in 20 years. And recently, Cody discovered that his father wanted to be a part of his life, but Cody's cultic family would not allow it and used kind of blackmail tactics to prevent his father from being a part of Cody's life. Tragically, Cody discovered much of this after his father had already passed away. In November 2013, Cody and Candy married and lived in the Ozarks. Life there was tumultuous. The family, said in quotes, Cody's cultic family, constantly tried pulling Cody back into the group, back into the family, back into the cult. It was a period of time where Cody was physically out of the cult compound, but not mentally out of the cultic way of thinking. He was sort of teetering. The family hated Candy because she was a threat to them. 
and their overall power and control of Cody. In 2019, Cody and Candy moved several hours away from the Ozarks. After moving, Cody started going through the process of leaving the cultic mindset behind. All contact with the family ceased. They called them and sent them harassing letters, trying to guilt trip and manipulate Cody. They keep the letters in case they ever need to use them in a legal suit against the family. They are the kind of people, according to Candy and Cody, that they anticipate kind of showing up at their home and causing a scene. They say they find you and taunt you with letters. Their subversive message is letting you know that the family always knows where you are. Moving away is the best life decision that Cody and Candy say they ever made. Cody is in college pursuing a degree in American Studies, and Candy is a law student. And she's going to be graduating, actually, in May of 2022. They are a wonderful couple and truly support each other. And I'm so glad to have you hear part of their story today. So I want to welcome Candy and Cody to the show. Uh, This is the first time I'm having a chance to speak with you, but I know a little bit about your story just from emails and and getting a little up to date and what you wanted to talk about. But I know that this is a powerful subject and also the fact that it's about one person in a relationship helping another person and or rescuing or helping them come out. We don't get to hear from couples a lot. And it's a really nice thing for people to hear about because I get contacted by a lot of partners by a lot of husbands, wives wanting to know what to do, if there's anything they can do and how to help. And so I'm so happy to have you both on today. And so why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves? Candy, you want to go first? Well, I go to law school and whenever I'm not in law school, I'm doing homework. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of homework with law school. That's intense, isn't it? Wow. And so just as an aside, I hope we get to this because I think, you know, one of the things that people have also noticed with this subject is there are not enough laws to protect people. And uh, oftentimes the groups or the leaders are the ones who are protected by the law in some weird way. And then the victims are not. And so I actually think it's a really powerful thing that you're studying in law school right now, because I think you'll you'll see a lot of that at play, that sometimes the wrong people get protected by our laws. So go for it, Cody. You want to introduce yourself? I was actually born here in Tulsa, and I was uh, quickly whisked away to my family's compound in Missouri. So I've spent most of my life there, but I've always had strong ties to here in Tulsa. I've gotten to do quite a bit of things, you know, quite a bit, quite a few things more than I ever expected I would be able to do. And uh, right now, I work for a major healthcare company. We deliver supplies to people who do treatments in their homes for peritoneal dialysis. So, Oh, wow. Okay. So you said two really interesting words. You said family's compound. That's not something a lot of people have. Not a lot of people have a family compound. Uh, So that is certainly, I'm sure it has already gotten the listener's attention. So then 
maybe what we do is we start with you and you can tell us a little bit about your upbringing and what it was like and what brings you to wanting to talk about it today. And then Candy, then we'll jump in with you, how you were involved in this process. Okay. So go for it, Cody, just start wherever you want. Well, where I did grow up, they didn't, they never referred to it as a compound. I refer to it as a compound because it was 160 acres purchased to prepare for the end of the world as we know it. And so now that I've left and got out of there, I refer to it as a compound. Uh, I guess I should probably start more with my family's side of the story. It's uh, I wouldn't really know exactly where to start, where their power, you know, over people began. Right, because it sounds like it's multi-generational, right? So maybe to go to the the relative who may have started this whole end times way of living and prepping for the end of the world. And how did it begin? So that would be my great-grandmother. She was the uh, so-called leader of this cult. She was, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I listened to your uh, uh, your podcast on the Worldwide Church of God the other day. That was where they followed for a long time. So the, a lot of the stuff that you're going to hear me say came from that. You know, we, for many years, we believe Saturday was the Sabbath and fasted on Saturday from Friday, 6 p.m. to Saturday evening. We There was a lot of similarities to that. And I had heard them talk about Herbert W. Armstrong before. But I, I'm going to say this started with my great-grandmother, though. She was born in, I believe, 1923. And she married a man named Paul Fred Pontius. He was a uh, he was a wonderful man. He actually passed away when I was 10 years old, but I think he for years had his doubts about what was going on there. So anyway, as the, the years went on, my grandmother was born in the early 1940s, and then my mom was born in the 60s. Sometime in the early 70s, they were attending a church here in Tulsa. You know, of course, they didn't believe everything. They had all the right answers. These churches didn't. And when one of these churches wouldn't listen to them, they would go on to another church or whatever. But one of these pastors was prophesying and praying and said that, the, you know, the uh, an apocalypse basically was coming and that things were going to get so bad in the cities that you couldn't survive. And then he prophesied and drew a circle on a map somewhere and said that this was the only safe place you could be. Just so happened to be in South Central Missouri. My great-grandmother, she drove around all over the Ozarks in this circle on this map looking for a place to buy. And at this point, it wasn't just my family. There were a couple other families from whatever church they were attending at the time that was interested in um, being a part of that, getting out of the city and listening to that so-called prophecy or whatever. So long story short there, she drove around a lot and finally found a place and put a bunch of money down on a place and basically did so on faith because they didn't have the rest that they needed to do it and would have lost the the initial down payment. So all of these things that happen, you know, that just any anybody anybody would look at it and say, oh, it's just, you know, it just happened. It's just happenstance. It's chance. It's whatever. They saw it as a sign from God and, and power. It gave them more power over everyone because they could say, oh well, it was meant to be God, God led us here and this and that. And so they got their place in 1973 and it was 160 acres. 
in the dead center of Ozark County, Missouri. I mean, it, it was a beautiful place. I mean, I, I spent my I spent my life there until she and I got married, and I always liked it. I liked growing up in the country. I have a very different perspective on it from what my mom's perspective was because you could look at this in a way that as my as my great grandmother started to age, she started to get a little softer, and maybe as dementia set in, she didn't lead with an iron as much of an iron fist as she used to. I mean, there was times that she did, but not always. So they bought the compound in the 1970s, in 1973, and they moved my mother and her brother there to live. So most of the family stayed in Tulsa through the week and worked because they couldn't find good paying jobs around there to keep the place paid for. And they were very, very bad at managing money, terrible at managing money. But most of the family worked in the week and they tithed their income, according to Herbert W. Armstrong. They all went back to that compound on the weekends. Every weekend they drove the five hour drive Probably back then it was a lot more. They drove from Tulsa to that small county in Missouri. Wow, that's quite a commitment. And I just wanted to say something about managing money. I've noticed that the people who are the heads of organizations, like the Herbert W. Armstrongs from Worldwide Church of God, and I, I laugh when I hear his name, and that, that it doesn't mean that I'm laughing at him. It's just that one time someone said to me, you know, do you find that with doing kind of specialized work that you have a lot of information in your head that other people don't have, but also isn't useful day to day? And I remember saying, yes, I know the name Herbert W. Armstrong, and I'm not sure who I know if I know the name of the senator of my state. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, that's not that's not OK. That's not normal. So he was he was my go to example for all this stuff that's cluttering my mind in, in info and names and dates and everything in any event. But people also who are the followers or believers often are not great with money if they think everything is a sign or if God will provide, you know, that there's somehow there's more money coming in in some magical form. And so they will sometimes spend it in ways that don't really make sense and are not smart for planning for the future. Anyway, just wanted to mention that. Go ahead with your story. So I think that's the difference, too, between someone that may be a good point to look at as to whether someone is being delivered or someone is being sincere in you know, what they believe. They truly believe it with everything that they have. So like, you know, Herbert Derby Armstrong, he had millions and millions of dollars. But all these people were just, you know, living their lives to, to give to him. And in this case, did people know? Did they not know? And I think that my great-grandmother... I think that she believed that she was a prophet. She she would prophesy, and that's what we would do, is whatsoever she would prophesy. She had an interesting way of prophesying to make it even more believable. She would play the piano. She used to play pianos in churches. She would play the piano, and she would make these songs up. I, don't, I say she made them up. I don't know if she planned it out in her head before, but she would play piano in a dark room where everybody was on their knees praying and she sing these songs. Some of them would be doom and gloom. Some of them would be really happy, but she would make them up as she went along as she's playing. And supposedly all these prophecies would come to pass over time. Okay. So interesting. I wonder what made her believe that about herself. That's a curious thing. Well, they used to tell me that they and basically they alone had the answer to 
to the future, to what was going to happen, to you know all of the mysteries of God. Basically, of course, they wouldn't have put it that way, but they had all the answers, and they were the only ones. But are they? But they said they weren't the only ones. Somehow, through a prophecy, God had told them that there were others out there, but they didn't. They didn't go searching for other people. They didn't like people other than themselves. They were very rude to others. They were very arrogant to others. You know, I I look back at this when you're growing up, and of course you don't see any of these things. And it's like I look at the type of person that some of these were, and I'm like, God, they must have been like the ones you just try to avoid every day, like that. You know, you know that person I'm talking about, where you just see them and you say hello and you go on, and you don't want to engage in conversation because they've always got something to tell you where you're wrong, tell you that you should be doing this, and this is not going to happen. That's going to happen. Oh, you're wrong about that. You know what I mean? Those types. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are the ones where you make it quick. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. Oh, look at the time. Got to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting that they really did believe that and they thought they had the answers. And they and it seems like they thought that it was their responsibility or their duty to share it with people. Sometimes when people are raised with these kinds of prophecies, they feel very secure because they know that they're going to be saved and everyone else isn't. Other times it's kind of a terrifying notion to be raised with, you know, and and the visions of what's going to happen to people. So you know, as you tell your story, it'd be great to just hear about the impact that had on you just growing up because, you know, that can stay with you. Yeah, the the impact of that on me is still to this day. It doesn't matter what happens. It's like if, say I, say I were to be in a car wreck tomorrow, say me, me and Candy were in a car wreck and something happened to her and I made it, all that would be in the back of my mind is this, is this my fault? Was I wrong all these years? The past few years, you know, it's not, it's not that I believe that way, but it's there. It, that's the impact. That's the lasting powerful impact is what if they were right on some level. And here I am bashing these people of God, you know what I mean? Which my philosophy on it has long become that if I have to be like them, if that's the sort of, servant that I have to be if I have to worship a deity that believes the way that they did, then okay with whatever happens because I don't want any part of it. Right. Okay. So Candy, you see that, right? Because you'll you'll notice that kind of what if they were right and that reaction to things probably that's different than yours. Yeah. I still have to recognize that he's still um coming out of that. But it is kind of hard for me to understand at the same time because it's something that I just don't get because I never had that experience. Right. Yeah. It, and it's so automatic, right? It, it, when something is so programmed, it, after a while, it, it doesn't really matter if it makes sense or not, but it is absolutely automatic. And then, right, when you're with someone who wasn't raised that way, they're going to assume that you're reacting in a similar way to them about a similar event, like a car accident, but you're thinking it's going to be very different. And it's probably only until you talk about it that you realize that because we carry that programming with us into our adult life until we, we figure out how to kind of take it apart. Through my great-grandmother's influencing everyone that these were just either good children or bad children. and. My mom was supposedly a bad child. It was one of those things where 
she would do something, you know, something that would be normal for a child. They wouldn't eat peas or, you know, I, I'm just making that up there, but it could be something as simple as that. And they would keep her at a table all night until she ate her peas. And oftentimes it would turn physical. There was a lot of mental abuse. There was a lot of physical abuse. The rod was not spared in the case of children over there. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. There's a there's a lot of children that have certainly had a lot worse. It wasn't just wanton beating of children and chaining them in the basement, but it was it was all done with the the, the premise of bear the rod spoil the child. They were going to no discipline one way or another. So in my mom's case, she was not a bad child, but there were so many times where she would do something and she would be forced to sit there and until she admitted to their version of the truth. And they would go on and on and on and on until whoever they were after admitted the truth, whether it was true or not. Until they admitted the way that it was narrated from their point of view, that's the way it was going to be. So now my mom's brother, he uh, he didn't have it so bad. He was kind of a golden child. So when they were growing up, he was sort of entrusted to do, you know, whatever he kind of wanted to get away with, he could justify it with a reason somehow and it was okay. But so after they graduated high school, my mom and her brother, they both came back to Tulsa to work. And they would continue that tradition of going to the farm on the weekends. They would get off work Friday night and they would go to Missouri, make the five hour drive till early hours in the morning. They would work all weekend on the farm and then they would drive back. Some of the important players that were part of this story would be my mom's mom's brother. He lived on this farm from the time, I believe he was 23 when they moved out there. And all of these years, and he still lives there to this day, he's never had a job. He's just worked here, lived there. He worked when he was younger. That slowed down much, much more as he got older. But he married a woman who was supposedly saved from a drug habit by my grandmother, my great-grandmother, excuse me. And uh, it was an arranged marriage. They did not love each other. They didn't know each other. They were married, forced into the same bed in a way, and they had a child. So, uh, like I said, that man there, he did not he did not work. He worked only on the farm. And his wife worked two jobs here in Tulsa and went back on the weekends with all the rest of them. She was essentially, she worked two jobs and basically gave almost all of her paycheck to everything there and slave labor. That's what it was. Everyone did what they were told to do. They were in fear of the consequences of it not happening. So I don't I don't know where their their twist on power started, but I know that for years when they would prophesy and pray that something would happen, that uh, there were some things that did happen. Say somebody, I'll give you an example, someone that went to a church with my great grandmother crossed her in some way, and six months later that woman died of cancer, and that was that was God doing it right there. That was God telling that woman she messed with the wrong person. They wish that those things would happen, that, uh, you know, God's going to teach this person a lesson or whatever. And, you know, occasionally something would happen. One, one of these prophecies would be right that this person would die in a car wreck or he would get cancer or his wife would die of cancer. And that was that was 
power of God right there. That was what they would say. They'd pray up. They'd pray and thank God. Oh, that can make an impact on family where if you're around people who who are praying for someone to get better and to get healed and to and saying that's God, that's one thing. But if it's the opposite that, you know, you pray for someone to get something, a disease or to die or whatever. I mean, that's, that's harsh. That is really harsh. And so, you know, it can make you really fearful of those people. I think at times, cause you just want to stay on their good side. Cause if they are going to pray for your demise and you've been raised knowing that it works when they do this, even though it there's no connection, but still you can be made to feel like there's a connection. I think it really keeps you in line. And and you know they they use that on the opposite way of that. They use that to their advantage too, because the uh, the aunt that I had that I told you that was basically used for slave labor, she had cancer at one point, and her cancer was supposedly miraculous to heal, and that was. Happen, the healing happened from a prayer session it happened and basically i i have no doubt that she's lived in fear all these years because my great grandmother told her that basically in you know a veiled threat god could bring that cancer back at any time you know and so she did what she was told when she was told to do it they said jump she said how high and that's all she's known from the time she was a young woman incredible incredible wow so controlling. I wonder also just about if there was a difference in how girls were treated versus boys. Because it sounds like even though your great grandmother was in charge and maybe started it, the boys were kind of given honors and girls were abused. Yeah. Is that, yeah, that was how it was? would be accurate. Wow. Okay. My mom's mom would be probably the exception to that since she was the oldest child, but she was not treated as good as boys were for, for certain. Okay. What's hard about that, I think when you're a good person, I mean, you, you can be happy that you're not getting as abused, of course, but you can also feel kind of guilty about it. Like, why is it that I'm being treated better? And it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. But there's also nothing you could do about it. All right. So then, you know, with that childhood, I mean, thank you for the details because it gives us a picture of what it was like. And so then moving us closer to, to now, what are some things that led to you leaving it? So as I, as I grew along, like I said, I never lost my faith in God. So I just kept, kept going with that. And, uh, I thought that, uh, they were misguided at some point. I realized the things that they were doing, I didn't think that that was right. Have you know, after I don't know how many times I've read the Bible and I n- couldn't really find things that led me to believe that what things, a lot of things that they did and said are the way it should be. But I kept my mouth shut and I never stood up to them. And as I got older, like I said, my great grandmother, she eased up on things and there was a lot less iron fist rule, I guess you'd say. There was a lot less of that. And as I began working and getting into, uh, you know, things where I had to leave for other than just school. Um, I started seeing a little more of how things actually were. And I still would never have said I grew up in a cult. I just, somebody asked a question about my, some strangeness that was going on. They're just weird. Just a weird family thing. It's, you know, we were always told too, that we, we had to go back to that place. We could leave for a little while, but we had to come back there. So 
my goal, ultimate goal at that point was to build a, a small house on that 160 acres somewhere and live there. I went on as I grew up. I met Candy in 2012 and we started dating. And I had dated other girls before that, but I was expected to bring these girls to into the program, into the, the fold, I guess. And they were supposed to assimilate with what was happening there. And of course, none of them would. None of them, they probably all saw what was going on and thought it was crazy. Most of those relationships, I ended them because, well, I mean, there was always some problem in it. You know, that probably wouldn't have worked out anyway. But ultimately, it was because of my family's, at my family's behest, because they didn't approve of me. All right. So then what happened when Candy wouldn't get involved? She wouldn't give up. She fought to uh, keep what we had. So around that time, we had been dating. We started dating in February of 2012. And we dated through when in August we got engaged of 2012. And then we stayed together. And I, I broke up with her in, um, I didn't really give her a reason why, but essentially it was because my family was saying that uh, she wasn't going to come into the fold, so she wasn't going to work. And it was, it was so hard for me. I, I just, I left, I came out here. I had a friend that was living out here in Tulsa and I came out and spent a couple of days with him because I just, I couldn't be around anyone or anything. We were, we were, were very close. I'd never been as close to anyone as I was to her. And it was strange because she was, you know, she was only 18 and 19, but she was so mature in so many ways, far more so than me in a lot of ways about being wise to how things actually work. Wow. What a painful time for you. And it happens a lot that if you're with someone and the people who are calling the shots don't approve then you feel like you don't have a choice. And I can't imagine what that was like to break things off, but really not want to and not be able to give an explanation. That's rough for both of you. And so then what happened after that? So I had, uh, I'd come out to Tulsa to spend a couple of days with my friend. He's one of my best friends. I met him when I, I used to work for the sheriff's office there in Ozark County. And uh, I met him when I worked there. Uh, we, worked, we worked together as deputies for a long time. He had left there and was working for the railroad and I came to visit him in Tulsa and he talked to me and we went driving around looking at pawn shops and antique stores, just kind of goofing off. I just wanted to get my mind off of things, but I was very stubborn. I was very bullheaded about it. And, I, and he told me he wanted to talk about something. I knew what he wanted to talk about and I didn't want to hear it because I knew what he was probably going to say, but he essentially told me a story about how his mom kind of grabbed him by the ears and said, you listen here, young man. She's like, when he broke up with his girlfriend, you're making a mistake. He specifically put it, he said, you're blowing your shot. That's what she said. And he told me that he had never seen me as happy as when I was with her. And he said, but I think you're blowing your shot. He said, I can't tell you what to do. He said, and he said, I'm with you, whatever you decide. He said, but I think you're blowing your shot. So I went back to Missouri and, uh, she came to see me one morning and I made all these conditions about how she was going to sit down with us at Bible study and she was going to have to adhere to this and that. And she agreed to all of it, but that's probably better heard from her perspective at this point, I think. Okay. Just to recap. So it's like you were in between worlds. I hear you saying 
it, like being of that mindset that still she needs to behave a certain way and she needs to please your family and be approved of because without that, then you can't be with her or maybe you'd have to leave the connection with your family. And so I think you're trying to make it work or make it fit. Oh, and at that time, I still believe that that's the way it was, that someday that we would have to be there to be saved. And some, there was a part of me that still believed that. At that time. I didn't talk about it because I was, like I said, I was kind of torn about where I was on things, but I wanted her to assimilate into that and just go on like I had been going on. Okay. So Candy, do you want to pick it up? What was that experience like being told, first of all, all these rules, all these things you had to do? So I don't know if that's the best place to start or if I should go back. You know your story and I don't. So you start wherever it makes the most sense. So for me, I was new to dating because I was 18. So I hadn't had a lot of experience. But initially, whenever I started going over and meeting his family, there were red flags that popped up for me. So I thought it was really strange that all these different families lived in one house, like Cody and then his great grandma and his grandma and his great uncle and a great aunt and a cousin and another uncle like I just it was very strange like that for me but I thought okay maybe maybe it's okay but one of the really big red flags for me was whenever he told me that he hadn't seen his mom in 15 years he hadn't seen his dad in 20 years and it was something like he He told me his mom just wanted to do her own thing and he wasn't part of the plan. And then he said his dad wanted nothing to do with him. And for me, none of that um, really made sense. What we found out is my, my mom's mom, my grandmother, went to speak to my mom and asked her why she left because nobody knew. After 15 years. After 15 years. And so come to find out there were a series of molestations by one of my uncles and my great grandmother knew about it and covered it up. Oh no. All of these years, some people were under the impression that some knew, but reality was only three people knew out of everyone and four, maybe more, but like I said, I, you know, those that don't want to do anything to do with this story, I don't want to get into what happened to them. But finding that out a couple months after I had broke up with her, it turned my entire belief system upside down. That's kind of where we were out there. Wow. And so your mom was not at liberty to say that this happened? No, she was essentially not. She wanted to tell me for years, but she was afraid of the, the reprisals that would happen for my great-grandmother. Even though she was out on her own and she met, she left and there was a man that my stepdad, he really, he helped her. I mean, this is where I should have grown up, you know, with them, with my brother and my mom and my stepdad. He's, he's a wonderful person and he's been there for her through all of her leaving that and getting out of that and all of her trauma that she had to relive. And, you know, like I said, she had it a lot worse. So he was really there for her through that. It is so powerful to hear you say that's that's where you should have grown up with your mom and stepdad who 
was a good guy and with your brother and your life would have been certainly different. But just finding that out. So then 15 years ahead, you find that out. What happens then? What changes do you make? That's where Candy was really able to turn it around, slowly helping me see things over time. I, I know I've said it already a dozen times. I don't know how she did it. Just It was amazing. You know, Candy, you had quite a task ahead of you because you're trying to hold on to a relationship and also trying to help. Sounds like trying to help the person you love really transition from what had turned out to be an unhealthy place and one where things were covered up that shouldn't have been and people were treated in ways they shouldn't have been and to kind of find a place in the world and all of that. I mean, it's, that's a big job. Yeah. So whenever he found out, we, we came to Tulsa the week of 4th of July. So that is about, it, it was probably somewhere around six weeks where I knew something was wrong. I really didn't know what, because he wouldn't tell me. He wasn't allowed to tell me. Well, I just, I didn't tell her because I was still eh. trying to process where I was with everything. Whether, you know, I, I had just taken something that I had been taught all my life to believe was the only way. And kind of, well, it might actually be bullshit. You know, it's not real. It might not be real. How much of it's true? How much of it's not? And I didn't know where to be with a lot of things. So I chose not to tell her because I didn't know. And I didn't know how to tell her, you know? So for me, I really didn't know where I stood with him. I felt like I was walking on eggshells. I had been pushing him to make contact with his mom and with his dad throughout our entire relationship. Because from my perspective, from an outsider's perspective, something thinks, <laughs> something's not right. And I just had intuitions and feelings based on things that I saw and pieces that I had put together. So whenever we came to Tulsa, I didn't get to uh, be a part of the reunion session that they had beforehand. I stayed at his family's house here in Tulsa and he went to his mom's house. And after spending the day alone there, he came to get me and we had dinner with his mom and stepdad and brother and spent the next day with them. But we stayed the night there at their house. And it wasn't until we left Tulsa to make the drive back to Missouri that I found out the story, which for me is like, well, that was the piece I was missing. Like, it felt like, okay, all these dots have been connected for me. But at the same time, I, did, I didn't realize just how many unconnected dots he had, even though things really were making sense for me. Uh, okay. That's a good insight. There are people who, um, who will talk about how there seem to be four different states that you can be in when you're transitioning in this way. People will talk about being physically in and mentally in. And then usually this, the beginning of the transition is, physically in, starting to be mentally out. 
than physically out, but still mentally in because you realize what, you know, is still under your skin and has been programmed. And then finally, to the physically out, mentally out, it sometimes takes all those steps. Um, so I, I absolutely know what you mean. That's very much that what it is. That's ex- that hit the nail on the head right there. A lot of people have said that, you know, when they describe the stages and I thought, oh, yep, those are these four main steps and they're hard and they're confusing. The middle ones are the most confusing, but they're really important to start kind of shaking things up in your mind and also seeing what's hanging on to you, even though you don't want to be hanging on to it anymore and seeing what you can do with that. But you, you were, you hung in there. Yeah. For me, I I never had doubts as to what I wanted. I just didn't know how things would work out. But I knew this person, and the person I'm referring to is the person that I knew when we were dating, because things kind of changed for us after the breakup, because it felt it was like the family had a tight grip on him. And so he kind of changed to that behavior. And things were different between us for a lot of our marriage because he still wasn't ready to let go. And really, I think it was whenever we moved to Tulsa in late 2019, I think that is whenever the mentally out started happening because, you know, we're not living right next to it. And whenever I say right next to it, we were probably 20 minutes away. So there's that disconnect and you're not as attached to things because you're not living as out of sight, out of mind. And so it's just been in the last year that he's made that jump. So that's seven years. That shows the the intensity, how hard it is, how controlled your thinking was, and also the fear that was kind of laced through it all. Okay, so thank you for that. And and bravo to you, Candy. It's like being tough and kind at the same time and knowing who to be kind with, knowing who to be tough with and when and where and finding that, striking that balance. And so how about for you, Cody? I mean, what would you let people know now? This is also knowing that, you know, as you said at the beginning, there's still work to be done. But just with where you've come to, what's been helpful and as a guide for people who are leaving, but also for the partners of people who are leaving, what what was really helpful for you along the way? As far as I realize, I realize how different every one of these situations be, but as far as the individual that's involved, I would recommend that they, and you know, it's kind of cliche to say it, but to keep an open mind. It's not possible in most of those situations to keep an open mind. But that being said, if you're looking at it from a religious point of view, there should be nothing secretive about religion. Religion should be something that is for everyone, for everyone to know, free to all, and access to anyone who truly inside wants it. So there shouldn't be any doubts or questions. And if there are doubts, follow through with them. Don't channel it to, okay, it's this, it's acceptable to not know. Whereas it is acceptable to not know when someone else isn't dictating your life. That that being said, it's just like taking that from a personal point of view. Back then, I was okay not knowing things because those were 
God's things, quote unquote. You know, it's okay to not know the origins of the universe. And it is okay to know them, but you should be searching for correct answers. So then on the flip side of that, someone who's trying to help them out of it would be to ask them questions that you know they don't know the answer to, but they're going to be scared to ask their leader. So it makes them think. Don't ask questions you know that they're going to run to and get answers for because all they have, all the people that have the power in these situations, all they have to do is, well, God said this to me, and it's lost. Ask them things that they're going to be afraid to ask the leader because they know that you've been talking to someone who doesn't believe and is trying to make questions. You know, it always has to be from a loving point of view. Okay. So I like the idea of asking questions in that way, helping someone think. But right, not in a way where you're shutting the person down or making them feel attacked or judged or anything, but really opening their mind. All right. Anything else that was that's really helpful just before we sign off? You know, having every situation, seeing how different every situation can be, it's so hard to it's so hard to imagine what some go through, but thing things shouldn't be hard. You should be able to look at a situation, look at a question and not create so much turmoil inside yourself that it makes you sick. If anything is doing that to you, then there's probably another better way. There's no there's no one way. There's no one person that has all the answers. This whole situation for me, I don't even believe in God anymore. I don't I don't know what I believe and I'm okay with that. I'm always on the search for answers, but I'm okay with not knowing. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. I mean, that's a very powerful place to come to, just to be open, be open that there could be answers out there and maybe not, but to still be living your life and to not have that be the thing that you need to focus on or that you need to know in order to be moving on and in order to be, quote unquote, safe in this world and that you're perfectly fine without it. And if you find something like that, I guess I'm sure you're going to be cautious about letting someone else dictate for you what you should believe you know you need to kind of take i think you you would need to decide for yourself as it's presented to you and if it makes sense to you okay all right so candy was there something you wanted to say yeah i think that a lot of people that are coming out of these situations i think that they well i know from our experience, and I think that it's probably true for most people, a lot of them start having identity crises. And I think that that's part of the cycle, too. I think it's something that you have to work through that as well. And it's part of your recovery and your progression to becoming free from where you were and what you believed. And I think that in the last year since we've been going through this, it's the best times of our life to finally be free. For a long time, it, it was like you just felt stuck in a rut, or at least that's kind of how I felt because I was like, okay, we're not living there, but we're not making progress. And I we were making progress. It was just bits and pieces here and there. But once you have that breakthrough, it's the best thing that you could ever ask for as far as like a partner goes, like from my perspective, like that's the best thing that could have ever happened. That's, that's what I've been waiting for the whole time. 
That's a beautiful place to end our talk today. It was a pleasure to talk to both of you. You've been through so much together. And now that you get to enjoy, I think also being fully present with each other and not distracted by so much and so much internal turmoil and conflict, you know, you get to really like be in the room with each other, so to speak. I'm sure it feels really nice. So thank you. Thank you to Candy. Thank you, Cody, for sharing so much with us and sharing your struggles and your journey. And I'm so glad you are where you are now. Thank you for having us on. I know that you help a lot of people with what you do and listening to some of your podcasts. I know that I know that there's people that hear that and it probably gives them a lot of hope and a lot of help. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for saying that. It's my pleasure. So I wish you both the best of luck um, on this continued journey. Thank you. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Cody and to Candy for talking to us today. It's really important, I think, for people who are in relationships to talk about how these kinds of experiences affect them not only individually, but together as a couple. And thank you also to Cody for going into talking about his childhood, his history, something he hasn't talked about. Something that really struck me was when they talked about having a kind of history like Cody's, where you're made to fear Armageddon, where you're witnessing people being mistreated, where you're worried about God's wrath, where you're worried about doing it wrong and the consequence, the great consequence of doing it wrong, then you have these ingrained fears that are hard to shed. And that's certainly something we can all understand. What's important, though, is that even though there can be themes that overlap with other people's fears, everyone's fears are unique to a certain degree. They are individual, which means that others might not understand them or expect them or know how to respond to them. It's also interesting to hear people who have specific fears talk about how they didn't realize when they were younger that those fears weren't shared by the rest of the world. They thought everyone worried about the same things. And as soon as they spent more time socializing with others, being introduced to people in the world outside, they noticed how unique or how nuanced and different some of their deeply embedded worries were. And then, unfortunately, it left them feeling different than others and afraid to express their fears. So much of the time when people express their worries, they have needed to get to the point where they understand them well enough to express them. And they can see them as a worry or a fear, as something that's causing them panic, but that might not be rooted in reality. And they need to find a way to put them into words so they will then be able to get help with them or have people know so they don't feel alone with them. But I can see that it is hard at times to put them into words, but it also takes bravery. It takes bravery to share them in order to connect with others, in order to get help. Too many people who I've worked with have told me that when they finally got the nerve to express their fears, they were looked at with kind of confusion or laughed at at times or told that that was weird or paranoid. And so 
I think for the people sharing them at times, they also have the concern that they're now exhibiting something that they see as a significant sign of weakness in them, that they have those fears. And they're also worried about being looked down upon, like they're going to be treated like they're children. After people either express what makes them worried, if they come to speak with me or even speak with me on the computer or on the phone, then I'm able to respond in a way that helps them feel heard. If it's not put into words, there are times that I might pick up on kind of clues, hesitancy, nervousness in their tone, body language. But if I don't pick up on those signs, and sometimes I don't because people raised in cults, they learn to seem fine to the world outside, I guess, so that people wouldn't ask questions. Well, then all the more reason that people who have learned to seem fine don't think and don't walk around thinking that people just don't care and that people are going to be kind of reckless with their emotions and insensitive. And it could be that they just need to explain them and they need to find the words. People are also sometimes scared that something will happen to them if they expose what happened behind closed doors in the group or in their controlling relationship. Or, as I've talked about, there are some people who will be afraid that something bad will happen to the person who heard the secret, so something might happen to me. And so I've been called many times after sessions by clients making sure I got home okay or reassuring me that they got home okay, even though I wasn't worried, but I knew they were. I've done counseling with people on a bench outside my office because they could not tolerate being cooped up. They had felt kind of boxed in or held against their will, or they were made to feel so scared of what would happen in a therapy room, like what Scientology does to its members, that they didn't want to be in an office with a door, even if it didn't lock, and my office door does not. I make sure, for example, for my former cult member support group that I run every other Wednesday night, that the participation in it is not mandatory because there's so much wrapped in that kind of expectation that was placed on these people where they're not supposed to disappoint people. They're not supposed to look bad. They're not supposed to be living in a way where they're clearly not keeping up with their commitments or they're not behaving with integrity, which is often the phrase used by cult leaders and controllers and whatever other kind of words insults were thrown their way in controlling groups. So I make sure to keep it loose. I also make sure that no one is talked about in a negative way when they're not there and no one is given a hard time for missing a meeting. I wouldn't do those things anyway, nor would I tolerate those things. But I make sure to let people know that, that it's not something they have to worry about with me or with a group or with counseling. I'm also careful not to make any comment towards someone who has arrived late for a group or for a session. I just welcome them with a hello. They know they're late, and I don't have to mention it. And instead, I give them a lot of credit for still showing up, even though they were running late, because they were probably not given the ability to have that be tolerated and to have that be able to go unnoticed whether they were in a cult or in a relationship with a narcissist who, of course, would never tolerate. 
There are also many people I work with who are afraid of the dark. Things they didn't want to have happen happened in the dark some of the time. And in Bible-based cultic groups, they were made to worry that demons would come to get them while they're lying in bed. I know that when I was young, I used to take a running leap from my doorway onto my bed. I didn't want to have my feet next to the bed. I was afraid that something would grab my ankles if I stood there as I climbed onto the bed. I was never traumatized. I was not in a cult. Nothing like that ever happened to me, but I remember I saw an image in a movie that scared me that, unfortunately, I was let to watch and I was too young to watch. And it stayed with me. And when I went off to my first summer camp at age eight, I was way too afraid to let people know that I had that fear. So I would wait until everyone was already asleep before I did my leap onto the bed. Or I would always choose the top bunk if there were bunk beds, because of course, the higher up I was, the safer I was. I knew, or I had a sense, that I was too old to have that fear at the age of eight. But I had no idea at what point I was supposed to abandon it, at what point I was supposed to be done with it, or it would leave me. But somehow I just knew to stay quiet. I knew I had that as a secret and I felt immature. But by the following year, I had gotten over that fear, and I found a visualization that made me feel safe. But my heart beat before I got over that fear, just like the danger was real. All the more so for people who have truly ingrained fears, who have also lived in a community that reinforced those fears rather than helping you to see that it wasn't based in fact, and you had nothing to worry about. And even all the more so for those who truly experienced trauma at other people's hands or witnessed it around them, who witnessed abuse. So many fears come out of feeling like you have the power through your actions, through your thoughts, to wreak havoc in your life and keep yourself from harming your loved ones or harming yourself or endangering yourself in some way is on your mind all the time. I'm very grateful to those people like Candy who give people like Cody a chance to talk about what he's afraid of without judgment and without that kind of flippant response like, ah, you don't have to worry about that because just telling someone to feel better is just like telling someone to calm down. It never works. It's good, however, to do what we talked about here before, which is to consider the source. Consider the source of that teaching, of that fear, that instilled fear, that reinforced fear. And even though it was presented like it was based in fact, it's usually something that's conjured up in the mind of someone controlling you, someone who is pathological, or someone who is paranoid themselves and truly believes it. But either way, and in all those cases, it's not based in fact. So the first part of the bravery is talking about it. The second part is to test your fears to see if you actually have to worry about what you're worried about. And test out your environment and the people in it. See if the things that you were told 
actually play out in real life to see if you're in need of protection, if you're in danger, or in fact, instead, you actually get to sleep soundly at night, tucked safely into your bed. It's good for people who experience fears to know that the people who love them want to help them conquer them. But also, it's good for you to be patient with yourself and for you to be patient with your loved ones if you conquer one fear and another one pops up because there could have been a trigger for it and you need to address a different fear sometimes than the one before. And it doesn't mean that you are regressing. And it doesn't mean you haven't made progress. It just means you're human. See it actually, if you can, as a positive thing. Because without that trigger, whatever triggered that fear that you had right under the surface, you might not have realized you still had it. And I'm sure it was rummaging around in your mind and staying right under the surface and probably affecting you subconsciously in other ways. So greet the emergence of that fear that got kind of reignited by something with a sense of opportunity. Like, now that I know what it is, what's still bothering me, I can deal with it. And I can get help with it. I want to end with a quote by James Baldwin. Not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.